the vast majority of foundation model companies are just going to fail. You're, you're not going to beat OpenAI and you won't have a differentiated use case. You've got to do something better than they do. And if you don't, and it's cheap enough to move, then why would you use somebody else's model? So it doesn't make sense to me to just go try to be head to head unless you can beat them. Um, if you can't beat them at the consumer use case, you've got to beat them on some other dimension. Our niche has been that we believe the value doesn't reside in the model itself. That is something that's ephemeral. It's the process of building and customizing models. And that's basically what our products are about, is how do you go and do this and, and end up with that artifact at the end of it. Everyone has to have their take, but the vast majority of them just going and building models and calling it victory, I just don't think it's going to work. I, I don't think you're differentiated. I don't think you're solving a problem. Woohoo, you built a model, great. Now a lot of our customers can do that with our tools without a whole lot of engineering work. And so what are you really doing that's new and adding value? And I think that's the key is you, have to, you always have to solve a problem. Just building a piece of technology because you said you, you can do it doesn't really prove that you can solve a problem. Listen to the Startup Field Guide, where we learn from successful founders of unicorn startups how their companies truly found product market fit. I'm your host, Sandhya Hegde. And joining us today is my partner, Waylon Dang. Together, we'll be diving into the story of Mosaic ML. Mosaic is the developer of open source infrastructure for training LLMs. The company was acquired by Databricks for $1.3 billion in July this year and has gone from zero to over $30 million in revenue in just over six months. Joining us today is Naveen Rao, the CEO and co-founder of Mosaic ML and now the head of Generative AI at Databricks. Welcome to the field guide, Naveen. Thanks for having me. I noticed that you've been working in AI research since at least 2012, like your days at Qualcomm. And even then your previous startup, Nirvana, which got acquired by Intel, so I'm curious, could you share more about those experiences and did they play a significant role in informing when you started your company Mosaic ML? Oh yeah, this has been a long-term trajectory for me. It's overnight success, 15, 20 years in the making, maybe longer at this point. Uh, I've been interested in the AI field since the 90s when I was an undergrad. Uh, I even did research on neuromorphic machines at that time, some of, extending some of Carver Mead's work, if anyone's familiar with that. And I came out to the Valley, went to a bunch of startups, did design chips, software stacks, all of this kind of stuff. And actually went back to grad school in 2007 uh, to rediscover this thing. I basically said, it's now or never. And that was before a lot of these techniques really started showing massive promise. But in my mind, it was very clear that, that neural networks, large parameter spaces were the way to solve uh, problems we were currently not able to solve. At that time, machine learning was largely regression-based, and we didn't have enough data or enough compute to really do interesting things. Uh, but that started to change pretty rapidly. And so I, I think I saw that earlier uh, than a lot of folks. My, my family all thought I was nuts for doing that, you know, going, going back to grad school with a, with a kid and a half and all of that. But yeah, so then I, after finishing grad school, after a brief stint as a postdoc and in finance, then I went to Qualcomm and worked on neuromorphic computing architectures. And... That's right around the time that deep learning started becoming, I would say, prevalent in the research world. Mm -hmm. And it was like, this is not just a flash in the pan. This is something, this is this, the change we've been looking for. I think you almost have to have this preconceived notion of change to see it sometimes. So this is the thing I'm looking for, and now I see it. And mm -hmm. then it, it, it was clear to me then that neural networks are a new way to express computations, a new way to 
to, to build a learning system. And what was also clear was that we needed new computing architectures to, to subserve that. And that's when I quit Qualcomm and started Nirvana. This the idea started maybe around the end of 2013 or so, but then we started the company in the beginning of 2014. We were the first AI chip company and I really explored this thing. And I would argue pushed NVIDIA a, a lot to, to think, rethink their architecture. Uh, especially around tensor math and uh, the acquisition of Nirvana was done by Intel in 2016, um, which kind of became the seed for a lot of the neural network efforts and, and accelerators. And we started a new division called Intel AI and a new corporate brand there. And so I, I grew that, I led it for a few years. And what were the early applications that you saw back in 2013? Like when you were thinking of your AI chip strategy, was there like an obvious, this is going to be the first killer wave of applications for my startup? Yeah, applications are hard, right? It, it's interesting if I, I can pull up, if I pulled up my deck and uh, I don't have it with me right now, unfortunately, but if I had that with me, I could show you personalizing device interaction was actually one of the big ones. and. At that time, there was things like Siri and stuff like that coming. It was still very new and not very good, but that, that was very clear. And it was also very clear that it's going to require a ton of compute. Also, we had the notion that very large models were going to do something much better. It wasn't clear exactly what that was. This is pre-transformer, but it was clear to me that very large parameter spaces were going to do something, something more magical. And uh, we were building the computing architecture to support that from day one. We... The architecture was distributed from day one. I think some of the very early ideas were there. Then large language models started, I guess not really large language models, but BERT style models started in 2017. And that, I think that was the beginnings of it. it was, again, knew this thing was going to come and said, okay, that's it. And uh, scale was going to be important. At that time, no one cared about scale except for a few players. And even in 2021, well, Mosaic in January of 2021, Toyed around with the idea in 2020, I quit Intel in the beginning of 2020. And it was clear to me that large models were now at a point where they're going to do something great. Again, before ChatGPT, only a few companies cared about it. And what then became a, a huge market opportunity was enabling more people to have access to this technology, bringing the cost down and the complexity down to a point where more people could use it. The whole thing was going to explode. Very similar to what we saw with PCs, with programming in the 1970s, only a few academic researchers had access to mainframes. Once it became cheap enough, small enough, easy enough to use, like an appliance, then a whole generation of people learned how to use these, these devices. We call computers and we learned to program them. I was one of them as a kid. And so I, I saw this happen in the past and this was another moment like that. And so the way I looked at it as a problem was if we can solve that problem of making it accessible, it's a huge market unlock. And so let's put all of our time and energy into making this easy to use so we can unlock that market. I mean, if you go back to early 2021 and you're just starting Mosaic, adoption of these large models, even though you had a sense that they were going to have some impact, was still really early. If you look yeah. at these like newer LLMs and like foundation models outside of the context of the large tech companies and so on that you're referencing, you're really curious, what was your core insight when you started the company, if you had this vision of making it accessible and so on, like how did that translate into what you set out to build? And I'm curious in the last couple of years, how much has that changed or if at all? Yeah. There's a few points of clarification along the way. We set out to make 
learning systems vastly cheaper and, and faster and at scale. And the methods we were exploring then to do that, we were trying to potentially even deviate from backpropagation and a few other things. Those things weren't practical and we abandoned them, but that was like, that was basic research questions to ask. And then we found there's this whole path of, of things we can do to make that learning process more efficient and more effective. And we started going down that path and actually turned out to be like, oh, this is not like finding 20%. This is like finding 4X, 5X, 10X. And we started doing that. And we actually then innovated on smaller neural networks, which were more tractable at the time, like ResNet. We won ML Perf benchmarks without changing the hardware. We could just change the algorithms and make them vastly more efficient. So we started seeing a lot of positive news there on the technology side. And so then it became clear that Yes, this was the path. This is what we wanted to build. So I don't think the notion of what we wanted to build changed throughout. It was maybe the tactics of what we were trying to do. And I have a framework for thinking about this a little bit. Um, and this applies to technology startups specifically, not necessarily product startups. There are lots of ways to build a company. You can build a great interface and have a have great product uptake. But in terms of technologies, you've got to be about two years out from mass adoption. If you're within six months, everybody already knows about it. This is not like a, a secret. If you're five years out, you, you just can't weather the storm long enough to keep going. The two years about seems to be the optimal amount. And actually we called it well, January of 2021. We really started these ideas in late 2020. And lo and behold, late 2022 is when it took off. So I think we got the timing just about right. Super interesting, Naveen, because you had been steeped in AI much earlier than most people, which positioned you to understand like where the puck was headed, yeah. what was going to become important in the next couple of years. Just on the tactics for a moment, in terms of what the path looked like, you know, was it all, was it always clear to you that you had to go end to end in terms of the product, go from training yeah. to inference versus a lot of folks would argue you could build successful companies if you solved an important piece of yeah but maybe a bigger platform or workflow or things like that. So how did you think about that? Was the, the plan from the beginning to build an end-to-end -end platform or did it evolve into that? You got to have this kind of minimum useful piece. And I've seen so many people try to build these ML ops startups. And I've hated that whole segment. In fact, I still hate it. I think it's you're building point solutions that are just their features. It's very clear that it's not solving the thing that people think is hard, right? You have to go and solve the, the actual thing that adds value. If I have a good model, now I can do all this stuff. It's not that if I have a orchestrator that can orchestrate something, but I have no idea how to actually build the model, I, I solve any, anybody's problem. You solve a very tiny portion of, of the population's problem. So I think this is a bit of a gut check, honestly. It's just like understanding how the users use the tools, what matters. We did from the very beginning, think about it holistically. We want to get to the trained model. The trained model is the artifact not the tool that enables you to train necessarily. That's part of the journey. So I don't think these point solutions make a lot of sense. And really that just comes down to understanding how researchers and model builders and ML engineers think about it. Get me to the finish line. Don't show me a method to learn how to run better to the finish line. Sure. And you focus a lot on open models, you know, open LLMs. Yeah. And was that always the case from the beginning? Because I think if a lot of folks would say, if you went back a couple of years, there weren't, a, a, there were a lot of people saying that open source and open models aren't viable challengers to proprietary models and solutions. And right. I was curious, what gave you the insight that 
there was going to be this wave of open source or open model development. And how much of that was, in your view, predictable versus what, what surprised you? We had lots of internal debates uh, about this. We're not maximalists in any direction other than building a company. And I think open source is a way to expose the world to what you're doing, to understand if it's important. Do people care, right? If nobody cares about what you're doing, then maybe you need to rethink it or you need to tell that story differently. And was efficiency of ML an important topic that people cared about? Easy way to test that, put some tools out, see if you get usage. So I think that's, that was one part of why we opened it. I think what we also saw was that the open model, the models that we built are, they have a time to live. They're not themselves an enduring thing. If I buy a car, car is relevant for seven, eight years, maybe 10 years. I, I don't want to buy a car that's more than 20 years old anymore. Most people don't. So a car has a time to live in much the same way. So does a model and the techniques get better. The models just get better. They get, you get more relevant information. You make them more specific to particular use cases. So that keeps happening. And so we said, look, it's probably better to enable people to build off of our models and then bring them into our ecosystem. And we have tools that can enable them to customize that for their, their purposes. So that was a very conscious thought process for us. It wasn't a just maximally ideologically driven view. It was a, we think this is the right way to enable the users, the future users of our platform. Whether it's the right thing to do to constantly open up open source models is something we assess every step of the way. That being said, I do think open source is a very important tool in, in development of technology. It's, it enables ecosystems to form and people to disseminate information in a very efficient way through code. We were still in the place of let's figure out how to maximally help uh, the developers that we're building tools for, and then we will figure out what they need and add value to the system. Naveen, maybe just given what you referenced as the time to live, any hot takes on foundation model companies like and those business models, just given the fact that I think you're right in, in some aspects, you could say maybe it'll be a race to the bottom. Maybe it's you have to keep getting better and better. Any, any opinions on that? Oh, lots of opinions. Uh, <laughs> I think, uh, I mean, the vast majority of foundation model companies are just going to fail. You're, you're not going to beat open AI and you don't, you won't have a differentiated use case. You've got to do something better than they do. And if you don't, and it's cheap enough to move, then why would you use somebody else's model? So it doesn't make sense to me to just go try to be head to head unless you can beat them. Um, if you can't beat them at the consumer use case, you've got to beat them on some other dimension. Are you better in a particular vertical? Okay. Character AI has done that really well. They, they went and built their own thing and it's really good for these personality type LLMs. Great. So they have their own niche. Our niche has been, we believe the value doesn't reside in the model itself. That is something that's ephemeral. It's the process of building and customizing models. And that's basically what our products are about is how do you go and do this and and end up with that artifact at the end of it. Everyone has to have their take, but the vast majority of them just going and building models and calling it victory. I just don't think it's going to work. It's like, I don't know, like I said, I didn't like the LLM space, or sorry, the op space, the ML op space is very right. similar to that. I, I don't think you're differentiated. I don't think you're solving a problem. Woohoo, you built a model, great. Now a lot of our customers can do that with our tools without a whole lot of engineering work. And so what are you really doing that's new and adding value? And I think that's the key is you, have to, you always have to solve a problem. Just building a piece of technology because you said you, you can do it doesn't really prove that you can solve a problem. Going back to Mosaic ML in 2021, Melvin, like 
What was your timeline to like having something people had started using and who were your very early adopters? What were they doing yeah. with Mosaic ML? So we, we started with the Composer library, which is an open source library. And really this was designed for researchers mostly. It was about combining different methods to make training and inference efficient. Efficient from a compute standpoint, a flock standpoint. And so we went after those users first. We talked to PhD students at MIT and, and just people we knew from our network. And they were the ones we asked for feedback. And this was, this was towards the end of 2021 is when we first had that library out and learned a lot from that. What do people care about and how do people want to use this? And we actually did get a, a reasonable community of folks using it. And from that, from there on, we said, okay, what are the pain points? What do they really care about? And that's when we started to bring our tools online. I think our earliest version of our tools were available probably beginning of 2022. We weren't selling them yet. We, we were working with some academic partners like Stanford, you know, Center for mm. Research on Foundational Models. They were a partner of ours, first ones that using some of our tools, in fact. Got it. So we did believe in this model of ex external validation for what we're doing and getting partners who will communicate their pain points to us and providing them some value in return was the way we went about it. Got it. And what were they using it for? Was it model evaluation? What were some of the early things that you saw people focused on doing with Mosaic ML? And I'm curious about your take on model evaluation, both Wei and I, since I think it's incredible that it, it's model evaluation as, a, as a, the theory of it is still very early and, and so yeah. subjective. Even though the products that are using models, so many of them have started reaching hundreds of millions of people, we still have a fairly subjective framework for, is this model better than that for this particular application that's a, a human actual workflow? So yeah, I'm very curious, what were some of those early use cases and how did you think about, okay, what makes a model good? How do we give our developers confidence about the way they will be using these? Yeah, the, the first use case that we had in 2021 were uh, mostly people building computer vision models and things like this and for particular domains. I think we had a lot of people in industry using stuff too because it was so cheap then. Mm. You could take a single A100 instance on cloud, 20 minutes you, you solved uh, ImageNet with our tools. That was a three or four hour thing with our tools. So that was pretty good. And it just made it so you could iterate quickly, right? So if you're an engineer at some company trying to build a computer vision system, this is just a quicker way to do it. So we had folks doing things like that. The first onboard was, like I said, the Stanford CRFM. We actually built a model with them, the PubMed GPT model that we put out there. We open sourced. It was basically an LLM trained on all of PubMed, everything from 1970 to like 2022, something like that. We learned a lot from that in terms of stability of the training process, how to make the, the whole process repeatable and easy to use. But they were building an LLM that was domain specific. It was basically the exact thing we're doing today at scale. The same idea was if you build something that's specific to a use case, you get higher performance and it's lower cost. The economics are always better. So I think an underlying belief that we always had was that economics will matter. Hmm. It's not a, hey, go raise a billion dollars or $2 billion and just throw it at GPUs. It's really got to, economics of the physics of business. And that's the way I look at it. And if you don't think about that, you are going to be in a world of hurt. Yes, you can consciously make a choice to have, to put an investment into something. That's okay. But you've got to think about it from a market standpoint. It's I'm an engineer and a researcher, but I still know what a DCF is, right? 
<laughs> this kind of cash flow model. Look at the model opportunity. Like I, I can think about it very simply. If it costs me $10 million to train a model and I run that model and in inference at 30% margin, then I need essentially $3 million or $30 million worth of revenue to basically justify it, minimum. If I don't think I can get that, then it's not worth doing. And so by making things more efficient from a cost standpoint, we can actually justify more and more use cases. You start thinking about it through this lens of a DCF. So I, I think that's why, that's why I think a lot of the, the model companies today are, are ill-founded is it's all a space race. I'm going to go build a model. I'm going to make it bigger or blah, blah, blah. It doesn't have any differentiation. No one's going to use it. It's not justified. So anyway, I think that's, that's the way I look at this. I always looked at it as a business, didn't look at it as a research project. And uh, I think that's a good, that's a good mindset. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely was not that common in 2021, but a little more no. popular <laughs> with both investors, a little more popular. With a little more popular. <laughs> Just a little. I'm curious, as you've started getting that wave of early adoption, both with industry folks as well as uh, students, researchers, any surprises for you? What were some of the kind of moments of feedback that, that kind of, Aligned with the eventual like direction in terms of like how Mosaic ML prioritized your product roadmap. Yeah, I mean, I think I guess it was a surprise for us. Just more and more companies are being funded to do these things, and a lot of them became our customers, which is great. And so the number of people who wanted to build models from scratch was actually much bigger than we anticipated. So I think that was that was interesting. I think it's still true. And then this actually became a core part of our strategy. Was like, hang on, this is not just the reason they want to build their models is not just for performance reasons, it's actually an ownership thing. Mm. If you're a company, like if you're a big company, a big bank or whatever enterprise company, you don't actually want to outsource something that could be core to your business. You want to own it fully. And I think that was actually a, a bit of a surprise for us and actually became a core value prop. Like, hang on. So if you want to actually go and own this, we do that. We enable you to build these things. We have the recipe. We have... The, the model code, and then the trained model weights at the end of it are yours. And I think that was actually something we didn't anticipate early. I think the economics are something we thought about from the beginning. I actually thought more people would think that way earlier. Now it's very prevalent, but you can look at the trade-off between inference, cost per inference and cost per training. And you can actually essentially do this build versus buy math, right? If it's very low volume, probably just want to buy. Once you get to a certain volume, you justify building at different scales. That thinking took a little while because I think it was shrouded by a lot of excitement. A lot of people were just mesmerized by what they saw in ChatGPT. And so they looked past this for a little while, but now it's being regrounded again. And maybe because the macroeconomic situation <laughs> dictates that as well. I don't know, but, but I think people are now thinking about, okay, what is rational for me to do? Is it, how much is it, how much am I willing to pay to own this thing? to be able to customize it, to have full control over it. And 2022 was obviously such a formative year for the market, right? Because yeah. the opening accidentally became a consumer company with ChatGPT right. and like just made this investing in AI, like a board level conversation everywhere around the world all of a sudden. I'm curious, like what you were seeing in Mosaic ML internally, how did it affect your inbound 
demand, the, what did it change kind of the questions people were asking or who were asking the questions and who was interested in using Mosaic ML? Yeah, I mean, we actually had some uptake right before then as well. I mean, it was still early for us. I, I would say the first signed customer we had, a paying customer was in mid-22. And then we started getting a few customers on board right around the time that ChatGPT came out. I think there was a groundswell of startups coming then who were being funded. They got seed or A rounds of 10 million bucks. And those started becoming companies that we were talking with. ChatGPT just changed the, the scale. It exploded, right? Now, all of a sudden, the awareness in the enterprise just shot through the roof. And I think they, interestingly enough, they went to security and privacy as their first thing. I guess it's not that surprising, but, and then we became that game in town, right? So if you wanted something that was your own, you wanted to do it securely and privately, you came to us. And so uh, I think we were situated well from the perspective of having some ideals about what the world should look like in terms of ownership of models and this kind of thing. And it turned out to be right, or at least positioned us well to build products against that demand stream. But that demand really just supercharged after ChatGPT. So I would say, yeah, that, that is what drove probably a lot of our growth from the beginning of this year through the summer. Great. Makes sense. And that definitely yeah. brings me to the acquisition. This is not the first time you've had a company acquired. I'm curious kind of what the process was like and what have been your learnings and takeaways from going through this, not once, but twice now. And what was your calculus as a founder in terms of A, is acquisition the right path? And B, what's the right company? Right. Yeah, having done it the first time around, there were a lot of challenges in Intel. I remember I came into Intel after the acquisition, we were put on a hiring freeze right away. They paid $408 million for Nirvana and we were put on a hiring freeze. And I was just like, really? Why did you buy us? You know, like, what is going on here? And then I was told that deep learning is a fad. I would, this is not something that's going to last. And it's okay, why are we here then? I would have just stayed alone. Right. And yeah, it was actually, I don't know, it was a pretty rough experience being inside of Intel. There was a lot of people who, I don't know if it's just their own interests or the way they think about it, but they, they just weren't willing to think about a world that was different than the one they knew. And I think that's the core problem. It's like an innovator's dilemma sort of a thing, right? It's like you got this core business and you want to put blinders on to everything else. But the reality was that core business was being very, it was disrupted. And to me, it was abundantly clear. It was as clear as looking at the computer screen app right now to me. And these folks couldn't see it. And to me, it was like just mind boggling. Anyway, I think what happened after a little while, about almost a year, we were able to form this new group because the, the CEO, then CEO, Brian Kozanich, uh, did start to see that this is going to be important and said, okay, let's go start a new group and you're going to lead it. That that changed things a bit. We definitely started developing products and making some big changes. And I, at the end of the day, we did get Intel to shift towards this. There's still a lot of resistance within the company. I think it just has to do with some of the systems and people who have just been there in a different world than what is, what is happening now. And so it's really hard to make big companies change what they do. You got to look more like NVIDIA than you had to look like Intel. And, and that's just, it's hard to do. So through that experience, I was pretty reticent to sell this company. I had no desire to. I told everybody here, I'm not going to sell this company. <laughs> and and in, in fact, part of what I would say to folks is we could become another Databricks. There's no reason we couldn't. We're going after the new thing and we just had to build the sales team up. And I actually had a few 
conversations with big players about acquisitions. To me, it was actually pretty easy conversation to say no. With Databricks, it was different because it's still run by founders. It's still a big startup. It's very true after being here now for four months, still very much a big startup. You asked about the process. I met Ali at Cerebral Valley event in April of this year. I'd never met him before. I'd heard about him and it's, I'd heard this is the startup founder who was able to wrangle the clouds, right? He's been a, the one who could go and negotiate hard against them and make carve out a market that's big. And when I met him at Cerebral Valley, I actually turned out that he knew us because we want a deal from them. <laughs> the Replit as a, I don't know if you know this company, they're a distributed IDE company. They actually use our tools to build their LLMs over Databricks. And Ali knew about this because he actually knew the folks at Repl pretty well. And he's like, damn, we lost to, to Mosaic. So he started looking into us. So he actually came over and talked to me at the Cerebral Valley event. I didn't know this at the, at the time, but it, it was an interesting conversation. I was like, okay, clearly this guy is obviously, he thinks like a founder, he is the founder and still very hungry. Like one of the things I thought was interesting is that I congratulated him on the success of Databricks. And he said, yeah, we're still a small guy. We got a lot to do. So I thought that was pretty cool. And then we just kept in touch after that, text me about stuff. So we'd talk about strategies and things like this. And then in early May, he texted me on the weekend and taking hey, talk. And I'm like, I can't talk right now, but we can talk later. So I said at the time on Monday, and I knew, I think that I was like, I think he's thinking about acquisition, right? And so then he, he said it during the call. And I think he fully expected me to just say, no, I'm not interested. But I had thought about it a fair bit because I was like, what are the potential outcomes over the next several years? If I look on a three-year basis, I'll probably need to raise more money. I'm going to dilute more. And what are, what's the best possible outcome? And I looked at it and I was like, it's not that different. If I joined Databricks, Databricks has a ton of growth still left. And so join force with Databricks, I can basically get access to the sales channel. I get access to all the security capabilities and things like that of Databricks, have a more holistic platform. And then I de-risk my position in this whole ecosystem. We could become the enterprise AI player. Then I look at that doubling Databricks over the next few years versus staying as Mosaic and maybe quadrupling it or 5Xing it. It's actually not that different in terms of with dilution. So I said, okay, maybe this does start to make sense. And then I said, I told Ali, I was like, all right, I'm actually open to the conversation. Let's talk about it. But I told him right then it's going to come down to economics. And we can make that work great. I actually really like working with these guys or talking with these guys. And then we started to talk more with the rest of the founders of Databricks. And honestly, we all got along extremely well. It felt like people I'd known for years. And that's still true. And basically, I think both of us on both sides are like, I don't know if all the details are going to work, but like, I do know that I can trust this, these folks to mm -hmm. figure it out. Right. And we're going to be partnering together to make it go work. And they are really aligned as a leadership in terms of why they are interested in this, as opposed to a really big organization with like right. multiple stakeholders who think multiple things and might acquire you even if they don't want to invest in you, right? Like <laughs> exactly. the paradox makes sense. Exactly. So very tight alignment, tops down. It was just going to be clear. We're going to hit the ground running. Let's go as fast as we can. Databricks was already a major player in the AI ecosystem and now even more with Mosaic. Yeah. From your vantage point, how do you see the ecosystem evolving? I'd love to hear what are you excited about? And in particular, like what areas do you think are you're starting to get more mature in terms of the adoption curve and, and what's still early? Like going back to your two-year outlook, what, what what's on the horizon in your view in terms of what's necessary to move the, 
of the ecosystem forward? Yeah, I think we are we're probably the best positioned company for a lot of reasons because they spent the last 10 years building this amazing set of data tools. And so those data tools allow you to do import from many different places. You can, you can ETL the data, you can do business intelligence and plotting different sorts of graphs and all this kind of stuff. So they've built all of that. They've also built an end-to-end -end governance platform. And what that means is that you can track the lineage of data, you can track who can see what data or any of these attributes that, that go with data. And now we can extend all of that to, to LLMs and generative AI. I think it puts us in a great position and we can do all of this securely and adhering to all the policies that different enterprises have. And we have this huge sales team and support team. So we're extremely well positioned now. What's a couple of years out? I think really understanding what the killer apps are is still not, it's still early. It, everyone got excited because something can chat, it can speak English. And that's a huge breakthrough, right? Making an artificial system be able to generate text that's human-like was was impossible five years ago. So that is a huge breakthrough. However, what are you really going to use it for? Okay, it's not super reliable. So what are you going to really use it for in time of the enterprise? That's still evolving. I think even on the consumer side, it's entertaining and people were entertained by it. But now it comes down to, am I really going to pay for this? I think you've seen that in OpenAI's user growth stalled out. And that's because of this. And I, I don't doubt that they're going to go and continue to innovate and try to figure out new ways to add value and get people to pay for it. But in the enterprise, it comes down to really making your data interactive. How do you do that in an easy to use way that respects privacy and governance and data ownership? And we're actively working on research to do this. There's early evidence of things like retrieval augmented generation. I think it's, I say early because there's still a lot of holes in it. You don't have guarantees if you want to make something uh, retrieve data accurately. You can right. say, here's a whole bunch of documents, ask it something. It still could be wrong. That doesn't work in enterprises. They need either a guarantee or a very good SLA on performance. So I, I think these are the open questions that aren't solved and ones that we're really focused on solving now. And we're going to have a set of tools that are going to be amazing for enterprises to interact with the data. And I'm sure you have noticed that the, there are regulators trying to figure out how to think about this ecosystem. And there's a lot of geographic differences between like how people are talking about it in the US versus EU. How are you thinking about what is the, what is the right strategy for you as a company to think about, okay, there will be some regulation. We don't know exactly what it will look like, but like, how do you ready yourself for what is to come and what in your opinion if you were asked for advice from a regulatory body like what would be your advice to them about how to think about especially open source model infrastructures and companies putting this stuff together and wanting to use it without obviously harming either their brand or their customers i have been involved actually quite Okay. quite a lot in, in the regulatory side of things. I was at the UK safety summits a couple of weeks ago discussing this stuff. I think it's very early and to go and start regulating development is just going to hurt us. Uh, I think the EU has done this to themselves a few times. And I think regulating development is just going to push development elsewhere. <laughs> if you want to help another person slow down your own development, right? We just don't understand these systems well enough yet. And we're not at a point where we have something that's a truly autonomous AI that roves around the world and takes actions on things. We don't have that. Uh, a lot of the things that I've seen highlighted as problems 
are actually problems in existing software. Right. Viruses, they're self-replicating. They can break out of things. They can do all of this stuff. It has nothing to do with AI. And we have technological solutions for that. So I think it's actually time to not regulate, but to actually look at technological solutions for problems that we see come up because we don't know what those problems are. We have a lot of guesswork happening. Some of this is driven by different ideological underpinnings. There's a, a whole group of people who feel that uh, existential risk is right around the corner. I think it's some, on some time scale, anyone else, any one of us in the AI field believes that there is some sort of a, a point where machines will become human intelligence and we can, and it can, can take on their own decisions and own, own actions. We have to think about what the world's going to look like. Do we want to start regulating that now? Or do we want to wait till we have better data on what that looks like? I'm more, more on, on that side of the fence. Open source is the way we make progress. If you close off open source, you close off research, you close off academia. What that does is you just decrease the number of researchers that can solve these problems. If anything, you close off open source, you create the problem you were trying to solve. You will close it to the point where there's always some profit interested companies who are building solutions and putting them into the world. So I think it's a horrendous mistake to close off open source. Companies can choose to open source or not, but do not make it illegal. That is, in my mind, it's crystal clear. Don't make it illegal. So I think that's, uh, I have a pretty strong position on this one for the reason of, I do believe we need every smart person in the world out there looking at this stuff to help solve these problems. Um, and frankly, that's part of what we built with our tools. We made it so that more people can access this stuff and we can get more ideas into the fray. Now, the, the other part about what should we prepare for and what do we do? We, we do have this governance platform. We, we have ways of respecting copyrights, but you can tell where data came from and you can say, okay, this model was trained on copyrighted data or private data or data had PII or whatever. And then you can actually serve that model only to the right places. We have that entire infrastructure. We're a little bit in the wild west right now. It was quoted as saying we, we're in the Napster moments of generative AI because it's just let's go sweep up every bit of data we can and throw it into the model, try to make it better. It turns out a lot of that data is owned by somebody. And those people don't like it when you go and try to profit off of it. So this is going to come to a head. It's not going to keep going like this. We have to have better ways of doing this. And so thinking about governance, thinking about ownership of data is actually very important. You know, if there are problems and, and uh, things seem like surprising capabilities, I think transparency is important. So as a company in this space, we want to have tools that allow you to disseminate information. You can share, share things to between different researchers, things like this. So anyway, I think as a company, we believe we have some tools today that actually help us in this world of potential regulation. I don't know what the world's going to look like in, in a year or two or three in terms of where AI will be. So it's hard for us to build tools that deal with the regulation today. But I, I think we are well poised because we listen to our customers and we have a lot of enterprise feedback right now. Makes sense. I, I do think, Naveen, that open source can help with a lot of problems that you're describing, starting with transparency. Yeah. Our, our, our view to, to a large extent is that it engenders trust and accountability and that people Absolutely. understand like, how these models are working as opposed to operating as black boxes. Yeah, you got to introspect, right? You gotta, I mean, even with the open source models, a lot of them haven't even published where their data came from. That's a problem. We actually have been trying, we've tried to be very transparent. If you look on our blogs, we show you exactly the data sources. In fact, we even, we can even give you an S3 bucket of all the data. You can go look through it yourself. We've done our, our best to try to filter it, make sure that we don't have anything that's illegal or copyrighted or whatever. There's a tr there are trillions of tokens in there. I guarantee you we've missed something. 
we want to make it transparent. I think that's the, that principle is all we have right now. Until we start seeing real problems in the world, then we can start putting in the appropriate rules. But principles are what we can rely on right now. And openness is, is a big part of it. And open source is, is absolutely crucial to, to AI safety in my mind. Yeah, we're definitely seeing the same pattern and on the stable diffusion side of the world. There's so many yeah. uh, startups that are using copyrighted artists and photos that belong to celebrities who would love a way to figure out how to both control as well as monetize what they own. And definitely it feels, you know, I think your point about it being a Napster moment for that right now is very real. And I think one of the things that I expect needs to happen is there needs to be like more monetization for the legal system to catch up and then rein it in. And hopefully there will be people who are able to like offer infrastructure that incorporates ownership as opposed yeah. to just everyone having to stop because they haven't found a way to do that. And I think Spotify is a great example of this, right? Yeah, so exciting days ahead. Curious, what would be your advice to AI infra founders like getting started in 2024? Obviously, like lots of unknowns, you have to stay very nimble. But if you were chatting with them, what would be your advice? Yeah, find those problems that are new ground and you can innovate on. I think evaluation... Uh, we, we touched on it a little bit, is, is an important one. It's pretty unsolved. If you come in with something that's actually useful, you get, you get share, right? I think don't pick point solutions. Pick something that's more holistic. Pick things that unlock a bigger market if they're solved. I, I think this is key. And it's a question I usually ask folks when they, because I get pitched on seed companies a lot as I invest in a lot of seed companies. And I always ask them that. It's okay, if you solve this, what next? What's the rest of the market? It's like people get very, they get target fixated on a particular problem. That's probably why they're good at solving those problems. But at the same time, you have to look beyond it. Okay, okay, solve this. What is, why, why does it matter? So I, I always say, once you find that thing that has like this market ahead of it that you can't even think about how big it is, mm -hmm. that's where you put all your energy, right? Stop everything else and put it all into that <laughs> because that's the thing you have to solve. Not the thing that unlocks a hundred million dollar market, you got to look at it like, no, this changes everything. I, I, that's the way I've, I've gone about it in the past. And I think that's the way we make fundamental change in the world. I encourage founders to think that way, to look for those opportunities. There's a lot of them out there, I'm sure. And I have no idea what they are. I hear some of these, some great founders come and, and pitch me something. I'm like, holy crap, that's, that's great. I never would have thought of that. And it looks at the problem in a new way. So think about the unlock, I think is the simple thing to say in, in two years. <laughs> Yeah, if you have to like really do the math to calculate market size, you're probably like not in the right zip code. <laughs> That's right. You're probably too late. <laughs> well, thank you so much for uh, coming on our podcast and uh, chatting about Mosaic ML. It's been such a wonderful journey. I feel like you have really been at the leading edge of a whole new industry being born. Uh, hopefully you'll write a book about it sometime. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been a real pleasure. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to the Startup Field Guide with Sandhya, an unusual ventures podcast. Stay connected with us by subscribing to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you liked what you heard, please rate our show and help us reach more aspiring founders with lessons on how to find product market fit. Thanks for listening. Until next time.